Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who reveals himself. We thank you for your word in Acts chapter 2. And we pray this evening that we might just grasp how significant an event this is. How significant this chapter is for our understanding of you and Jesus, your son, and the work of the Spirit. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, how do you go at, at waiting uh, personally, I, I hate waiting. You know those people who aren't bo- bothered by being told to wait? So, you know, whatever it is they're told to wait for, wait for your meal, wait for the next train. Uh, they've ordered some, a new bit of furniture and that furniture has been delayed for months. And when they're told to wait, that sort of person just kind of takes the news and they smile and they patiently get on with their life. I don't get those people. They don't make sense to me. I hate waiting. I've never been a good waiter. God's growing me in it and I'll get there eventually. But for all the excitement of kicking off last week in Acts chapter 1, basically what the apostles of Jesus were told to do after all the excitement is wait. So you have a look at Acts chapter 1 verse 4. Go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 4. Have a look. And just remember what the disciples had been experiencing for the last six weeks of their lives by this point. So for the last six weeks, the disciples had seen Jesus arrested. And they'd seen him flogged and beaten. They'd seen their, their master crucified and killed. And then they experienced the excitement of his resurrection. And for 40 days, we heard last week, for 40 days, Jesus in his risen form was with them and opened up the Old Testament to them for them to understand how all the Old Testament points to Jesus. And then following all that excitement, Acts chapter 1, verse 4, while Jesus was together with them, with the apostles, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. All the excitement, and then all they have to do is wait. And it would have driven me crazy. And it's all a bit of an anticlimax as you read uh, to the end of Acts chapter 1. But in Acts chapter 2, that waiting for God's promise comes to an end. But here's the thing. It hasn't been simply a 10 days worth of waiting that we're talking about. So yes, the apostles had to wait 10 days for the Father's promise to come. They had to sit tight for 10 days. But as we'll see, God's people had been waiting for the Father's promise since the day of the prophet Joel. And they'd been waiting since the days of King David a thousand years earlier. And they'd been waiting since the time of Abraham 2,000 years earlier. And really what the whole world had been waiting for since the beginning of this creation is God's promise in installing and declaring Jesus as Lord and Christ over everything. See, here's what we must realize as we look at this event in Acts chapter 2 this evening. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus is being declared as Lord and Christ over everything, and that changes everything. And this is not me just, you know, as a preacher getting excited or, or exaggerating. It changes everything forever. What we read in Acts chapter 2 changes the history of all the world forever. That's fact. So as we read this, please don't view this like the installment of King Charles III. Just out of interest, put, put your hand up if you know when King Charles III uh, is having his coronation. Four. Brendan's really excited about it. Uh, it's May 6th. I only know because I Googled it because I don't really know. Uh, Put your hand up if you think King Charles being installed as king is going to significantly impact your life. Good, no hands. If someone put their hand up, I was going to write your name down and then pray for you later. (laughs) 
put your hand up if you'd rather William be king. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You see, this, Acts chapter 2, it's not that. This event we're about to read about, it changes everything. It's fact. It declares once for all, beyond all doubt, with all certainty, that Jesus is the Lord, the King, over everything forever. And the challenge as we hear this chapter, because for many of you it will be quite familiar, but for many of us as we hear this chapter, the challenge will be just grasping how significant this is, how massive this is, how big this is. So having said all that, let's jump into the chapter. Again, make sure you've got your Bible there. There's plenty to cover. We'll glean over verses. Uh, But look at, uh, well, point one, don't look at your outline, look at the screen. Point one, write it down if you want, is the Pentecost event. So look with me from verse one now of Acts chapter two. So verse one, Acts chapter two, says this, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, and just so you know, uh, uh, Pentecost means 50th day. So this was the the annual festival that was held the 50th day after the Passover. So Pentecost was was a regular event of Jewish life. So when that day of Pentecost had arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. And what we need to realize from the very beginning is that this event was a once-off, unrepeatable event. And if it sounds strange, if it sounds weird, you know, rushing wind, flames, a fire resting on people's heads. If it sounds weird, that's the point. It is weird. It's, it's odd. It's extraordinary. And so imagine the whole event like this. You know, there were the disciples. They were in a house, probably in a room together in a house. And then this, this supernatural event takes place. There's something like a rushing wind, something like flames of fire. And verse 4, the disciples, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they, they begin to speak all these different sorts of languages. And imagine them like this. They're in the house, they're in the room, they're speaking these, mirac- these, these languages in a miraculous way. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, suddenly they, they spill out into the street. And there's, there's a crowd there in the street. The crowd's there for, for Pentecost, for this Jewish event. And we read in verse 5, if you have a look at verse 5, the crowd, that was, the crowd was made up of devout Jewish men... From every nation under heaven. So they'd come from all over the place, wherever their language groups were from, but they were Jewish and they had come to Jerusalem uh, to, to celebrate the Pentecost events. And here they are and they see this thing happening with the disciples speaking these languages and the crowd, they were shocked. Why? Well, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. They, the crowd, were astonished and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking? Galileans, aren't they from Galilee? And how is it then that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and, and Asia, and the names go on and on and on. And so what you can't miss with this event as we read the beginning of Acts chapter 2 is just how extraordinary this is. That the crowd see this and they're amazed that they're even, they're even confused and, and perplexed if, if you look at verse 12. And this is really important. The crowd were perplexed, not because they didn't understand what was being said, 
but because they did understand what these disciples were saying. You see, sadly, some people have got this passage very wrong. And what they do is they turn Acts chapter 2 into some sort of of tongue-speaking experience of, of unintelligible words and this kind of mystical spiritual speaking event. But as you read it, it's really obvious that this extraordinary event involves a crowd that have come from all sorts of different people groups that spoke different languages. And, and what they heard was these Galileans who had no rights, in a sense, to speak their language. There's no way they would know all these different languages. But then they hear them speaking in their own native tongue. That's the miraculous event that's going on. And it shouldn't be. You shouldn't be able to speak all those languages. That's the miraculous thing that's going on. But as interesting as it all is, what does it mean? And again, sadly, at this point, some start to make all sorts of of wild guesses about what's going on with this event. But even the crowd doesn't know. See, look again at verse 12. They were perplexed. And the crowd, the people in the crowd, they said to one another, what could this be? And some, verse 13, well, they figured they were drunk. Though personally, I'm yet to meet a drunk that's suddenly fluent in French or Arabic or Dutch. Maybe the language of slur, but, you know, that's as close as it gets. But thankfully, the the apostle Peter tells us exactly what this means. And that's what verses 14 to 36 are all about. And what Peter now says, it's really important. We've got to get this right. We've got to be careful that we don't get caught up in the miraculous event and yet miss the actual meaning. Because we get the meaning. So we're up to point two now. What does this mean? Peter's explanation. And that you remember from last week as Phil preached that Jesus opened up the minds of the apostles to understand the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, remember how Jesus gave them this, this master class in how he fulfills the Old Testament. And what we get with Peter's uh, words here is his learnings from that master class. And these verses that Peter uh, gives us and, and, and preaches to the crowd, they're so rich. Uh, and again, spend time uh, reading them at home because we can't go through all of it now. But the first part of Peter's explanation is to remind his hearers about the prophet Joel. So again, imagine it like this. An extraordinary event takes place. It's this great display. And everyone in the crowd acknowledges, wow, this is miraculous. Well, what's going on? What does this mean? And others, they sneer and they mock. And then what we have is the, the apostle Peter, verse 14, he stands up and he declares to the crowd. He says, no, 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 no. These men aren't drunk. Don't get it wrong. Don't be silly. It's, it's nine in the morning. They're not drunk. You know, perhaps by 11 a.m. in the middle of a Sydney summer during Christmas holidays, okay, there might be some people who've had too much to drink. Bad idea. Don't do it. Uh, but no, these, these men aren't drunk. No, no. Look at verse 16. Look at what Peter says. Verse 16. He says, no, no, they're not drunk. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And if you remember the book of Joel from last year in our gospel teams, part of Joel's words was a warning about the coming judgment of God. What Joel called back in his prophecy, the day of the Lord, was what he was warning the people about, when God would begin his final judgment of the world. But if you remember Joel from gospel teams last year, Joel's words, they were also this invitation for God's people to repent to turn back to God, and in doing so, they would one day receive God's Spirit. And so what Peter is saying is, what Joel prophesied about all those hundreds of years ago, 
of the day of the Lord to come, now is that day. It's come. The day of the Lord is here. It's the last days now where God begins his final judgment. And when God offers repentance to all people and and offers them his spirit for those who repent. And so what uh, Peter does is he he quotes from Joel's prophecies. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, he talks about the, the pouring out of God's spirit. And then he says in the last day that all of God's people will prophesy and, and see visions. And the idea there is that God's people would speak the truth about God and the words of God. And they'll understand the things of God all because of the Spirit. And then Joel also said that this will be for all people. So again, look at verse 17. In verse 17, it doesn't matter if you're young or old or slave or free. And it would also be for all nations. Which is why the, the disciples spoke all those different languages because the, the devout Jews had come from all nations and they'd come to this one place and now they were hearing the, 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 the glories and praises of God in their own tongue, in their own language. It was symbolic of God bringing his scattered Jewish people back to him as one. And it wasn't just for Jewish people. Again, I suspect most of you like me have no Jewish heritage. But look at what it says in verse 21. You see, part of Joel's prophecy, verse 21, was that on this day and from this day, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, there are so many riches to see in the Joel quote, and we can't explore all of them, but Peter's point is really simple. The incredible day of the Lord that Joel spoke about, that God's people had been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years, it's now here. With the coming of God's Spirit in this way, in the way that you, the crowd, have just seen God's Spirit come, well, that's to say, now begins the day of the Lord. Now are the last days. Now it's a new age, a new era, and that's massive. But if Peter is telling this crowd that this is now the day of the Lord, it begs the question, well, who is the Lord? Because he's saying that, if you, if you call on the name of the Lord, then you'll be saved. But, but what name of the Lord are you to call on? And so the next part of, of Peter's explanation is that this Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. Uh, and again, these verses uh, are so rich. Uh, please read them more when you get home later. We can't cover them all. But Peter's point to the crowd is, this Jesus, this man Jesus that, that, that you, the crowd, have no doubt heard about, because you're probably here for Passover last year, and as you, as you came to Jerusalem, you probably heard about Jesus or heard him speak, heard of his miracles. And Peter's point is really simply saying, that Jesus, whom you know and heard about, that's the Lord. He's the Messiah. And to prove his point, Peter gives, Peter gives reason after reason for us to believe him. Uh, so make sure, you, again, you work with me, and we'll look from verse 22 now give me one tick, Dave. Can you pass me my water bottle, please, mate? Thank you. Let me have a quick sip. But uh, look from verse 22. And again, you'll have to work with me here. I'm going to scatter through some verses, but just follow along. <clears throat> so verse uh, 22, Peter says this to the crowd. He says, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves, just as you yourselves know. And so what Peter is saying to the crowd is, 
You know that Jesus the Nazarene was a miracle worker. Everyone knows that. There's no doubt that he did miraculous things. Again, we've got to remember that, that if Jesus didn't do the things he did, the people who heard about him back in that day, they would have rejected Jesus straight away, rejected the gospel. But they heard about the miracles. Some of them saw the miracles. And Peter's saying, you know that he did it. How did he do it? Well, he's the Lord. He's the Messiah. Then look at verse 23. Peter says, verse 23, Sure, you guys used lawless men to nail Jesus to the cross and to kill him, but that was according to God's plan. And in verse 24, Peter says, Well, God raised this Jesus up, and he put an end to death, which, by the way, is exactly what David had said would happen in Psalm 16. So, so Peter's saying to the crowd, he's saying, Do you remember? Because they're all Jewish. They know their Old Testament. So Peter's saying, do you remember? Do you remember what, what David said in Psalm 16? Do you remember how God said that he would not let his Holy One, the, the Lord and his Messiah, he wouldn't let him see decay? Well, the Holy One, that's Jesus. That's him. And so Peter declares in verse 32, have a look at verse 32. He says, God has resurrected this Jesus and we are all witnesses of this. And here are the really important verses. And again, work with me just one bit more. Because look at what Peter says in verse 33. Make sure you're looking at your Bible. Peter says, verse 33, Therefore, since he, Jesus, has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out what you both see and hear. And so do you see, do you see what Peter is saying to the crowd? See, the crowd has seen this extraordinary event They've seen this this miraculous display of God's spirit. They've seen all the wonderful things. And they're asking the question, what does this mean? And then Peter tells them, everything that you've just seen, it means that Jesus is Lord. It means he is Messiah. It means that God has exalted Jesus to the right hand of God. It means that Jesus has now poured out the Holy Spirit because he is the Lord. You see, we've got to be really careful with Acts chapter 2. You see, yes, this is a chapter that marks the the permanent arrival of a God's spirit on God's people. And it is that fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And you get this this temporary display of the disciples speaking all these different languages. It's, It's a miraculous display of God's spirit. And that's temporary. But the main point of this whole event is to show the crowd and tell the world that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. That's the point. And just in case we've missed it, Peter gives us the punchline in verse 36. Look at verse 36. This is what chapter, Acts chapter 2 is about. Peter concludes, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he doesn't hold back his words, he's made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And doesn't that news just blow your mind? Or does it? Like I said at the beginning, our challenge in reading this chapter is grasping just how significant this is. And for many of us here, you know, we're used to the idea, Jesus is Messiah, of course. He's the Christ. He's the King. He's the Lord. We know, yes, God's promises have all come true in Jesus. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. That's great. But have we grasped just how significant this is? And this is point three now. You see, what is your response 
How do you, how do you respond to the installments and declaration of this Jesus as both Lord and Messiah over everything? Seriously, how, how do you respond to that? Do you, do you grasp it? Uh, some of you might remember Prince Leonard of Hutt of, uh, River in Western Australia. Who, who, who's heard of Prince Leonard? A couple of hands, yeah. Uh, he, he died a few years ago, but after a dispute with uh, the Australian government in the 70s, he declared his 75-square-metre block of land as a sovereign state. He just decided, I don't like the Australian government, they're not on my side, I'm becoming a sovereign state. And he installed himself as a prince, Prince Leonard, and uh, he gave his family royal titles, which my daughters would have loved. You know, they'd be princesses. Uh, he even made his own flag. Uh, he, he made himself a national seal. He minted his own coin. Uh, even someone from Morning Church this morning talked about buying some stamps from, uh, from the province of Hutt River. Uh, he even made his own passport. And supposedly he used his passport to travel internationally. You see, you hear that story and you hear that declaration. You know, Prince Leonard of Hutt River. Western Australia. It's laughable, mostly. There's a serious side to it, but mostly it's laughable. It doesn't mean anything, right? And like I said at the beginning, Charles III declared as king doesn't really mean much to us. Even if some dictator rose through the ranks and devised a coup and made all of us as Australian citizens subject to him and suppressed us and our families and everyone we love, Even if that happened, none of those things come anywhere close to how significant it is that Jesus is the king. You see, the Father's promise has come. Jesus has lived, died, risen, exalted to the right hand of God. And in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has now poured out his spirit. And that declares once and for all that he's Lord over everything. Forever. All eternity. So I ask you again, how, how, how do we respond? How, how do you respond to that? Just look, just look at how the crowd responds. Look at verse 37. Verse 37. When they, the crowd, heard this, they came under deep conviction. Well, the language there is literally they, they were pierced to the heart, cut to the heart. See, the crowd's response, it wasn't, oh, you know, Jesus is now prince of Hutt River. Oh, that's nice. The response wasn't, oh, all those hundreds and thousands of years of, of, of waiting for the Father's promise to, to, to come and to happen. It's happened. Hey, isn't that nifty? No, no. They came under deep conviction. They, they grasped how significant an event this was. They realized that this Jesus is the eternal judge that he reigns over everything, that nothing is outside of his sovereign power. All of creation is his sovereign state. So how do you respond? If this news of Jesus as Lord and Messiah has never pierced your heart, then you've never truly grasped the significance of this event. And for some of us, that sense of deep conviction has come and gone at times, and that's normal now, that happens. That's why we, we keep reminding each other every week that Jesus is Lord and King and that we're to give our lives to him because we forget. We need to be convicted about it over and over again to remember. But if you've never felt that conviction, if you've never been pierced to the heart that Jesus is Lord and Messiah and felt convicted, 
well, then you don't understand just how significant this event is. It's not Prince Leonard. It's not Charles. And this is the one whom one day you will stand in front of and he will call you to account. This is the one whom one day will say to you, I made you and I own you, whether you like it or not. What did you do with the news about me as king? Did you reject me or did you follow me? And the crowd, they got this. That's why they were pierced to the heart. And so they asked Peter, look again at verse 37. Look at what they asked. Verse 37, they asked, what must we do? And Peter says, verse 38, look at verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've probably seen those, uh, those period war movies, you know, those old war movies, uh, you know, when a soldier is, is, is pierced by an arrow, you know, those arrows all kind of shoot through the sky and a guy right in him. And uh, one of the worst things you can do, if you've seen those movies before, one of the worst things that man can do once he gets pierced by the arrow is try to pull it out himself. Uh, because it's a, it's a triangular spearhead. If you try to pull it out, it just makes the wound worse. And, and, and the, the arrowhead is, is tangled in his sinews as he tries to, to pull it out. And the pain would only get worse and worse. There's, there's nothing that man can do in his own strength to pull it out. That's why in the movies you see him kind of snap the bit of wood off so it's not so big. They can't pull it out. You can't do it. Well, as his crowd was pierced to the heart, there's nothing they could do in their own strength. That they, they were hopeless being convicted of their sin, being convicted of the fact that, that Jesus was crucified by them and by their sin. Which is why Peter says to them, the only thing you can do is repent. You stop trying to rule your own life as king and humbly come to Jesus, the king, for forgiveness. It's only in his name as Lord and Messiah that you can be saved. And so the obvious question for us is, have you repented? Some of you here never have. And if that's you, maybe today for the first time you're thinking to yourself, well, what if this Jesus is both Lord and King of everything? What if he will call me to account and I'll stand before him one day and he'll say, I made you and I own you. What did you do with the news about me? If that is you, in the words of verse 40 from Peter 2,000 years ago, I strongly urge you, be saved from this corrupt generation. See, this world will not ultimately deliver. This world belongs to Jesus. It's, it's his world. He's the king over it. And nothing can change that. And look at the promise for those who repent. If you repent, you will be forgiven. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you. It's for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. And so what are you waiting for? Honestly, if you've never repented, what are you waiting for? Repent. Get baptized. We can do it next week. We we can do it today. You see, the day when Jesus comes back will be too late. 3,000 who were in the crowd on that day when Peter spoke repented and were baptized. It was this incredible work of God. 3,000 who made Jesus their king and received the Spirit and are now with Jesus in all eternity. And if you are someone who has already repented, if Jesus is your king and you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, 
Do you remember when you were first pierced by that truth that Jesus is King and Messiah? Pierced by the truth of your sin and the need of forgiveness of sins. Do you remember how from that day when you decided to make Jesus your Lord, that that your life changed? Well, continue to be changed. Continue to live with Jesus as Lord and King. And we won't look at it in detail, and I'll finish with this, but in the final verses of the chapter, those who repented, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to prayer. And I know that uh, you know, Phil and Troy and I, we, we say this all the time, and we sound like a, like a broken record, but these are the means of God's grace to us, his word, each other, prayer. That's what it looks like to have Jesus as your king. We devote ourselves to knowing Jesus by his word and we remind each other constantly of his kingship, of of the ways of the king so that we might live like him. Because if we don't remind each other, we forget and we lose our zeal. And so we help each other. And because we have the one king Jesus as our king, well, then we're committed to one another, to fellowship. We're a family. We're a kingdom of people under the king. And because Jesus is king over everything, we devote ourselves to prayer. Because we know things are not ultimately in our control. And and we don't know the affairs of the kingdom like the king does. And so we pray and ask for help. And we depend on him. You see, Acts chapter 2 is an incredible part of the history of all of creation. It's the event that declares once and for all that Jesus, that man from Nazarene, is Lord and King over everything. And it marks that day when God's Spirit came into the world to dwell with His people. It changes everything. The question for you is, do you realize how significant this is? Well, I pray you do. Let me pray now. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have installed and declared Jesus as Lord and Messiah over everything, just like you promised you would. And we pray, Father, that you might help us to just grasp how significant that is, that it changes everything, that we can be saved by the name of Jesus, that we can find forgiveness by the name of Jesus, and by Jesus we can receive, and for many of us have received, your Spirit. Please help us to live in light of Jesus as King, And help any here who have not yet repented to consider giving their life to Jesus for the sake of your glory and for the sake of their salvation. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.